this episode, Once Upon a Man Without Fear. And welcome to the Once Upon a Geek podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. On today's episode, we're finding our joy discussing one of my all-time favorite comic book characters, the Devil of Hell's Kitchen. Yes, that's right. It's Marvel's Daredevil. Now, by sheer coincidence, this month also happens to be Daredevil's 60th anniversary since his first appearance. So happy birthday to you, Matt Murdock. Uh, my name is the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host, folks, but I am not flying blind. For this episode, I am joined by someone with a deep knowledge of the man without fear and someone who understands a sneaky lawyer's trick. Folks, please help me welcome to the show Mr. J. David Weir. Thanks for being here, Dave, man. How you doing? Oh, thanks for having me. I'm doing great. I've been looking forward to this. Oh, me too. I got to tell you, folks, obviously, if you're listening to this show, A, you have a bad taste in podcasts, and you could find better things to do with yourself, and B, you know that I have podcasted with a lot of people over the years, right? I've podcasted with hundreds of people, literally. I have listened to tons of podcasts, and it's not very often that I would consider myself a fanboy of a podcaster, but Dave, sir, your Daredevil podcast is one of my favorite podcasts ever produced. It just hit all the right buttons for me with one of my favorite characters and your presentation and the direction of the whole thing. I mean, you've done a, a million other great podcasts, but that one, for whatever reason, just really uh, sings to me. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit fanboying that I get to talk about Daredevil with you, sir. Now, we've been talking about doing this for years. I definitely appreciate the kind words. And we've been talking about talking about Daredevil for... <laughs> It's at least 10 years. Probably, yeah. <laughs> That's going to come up in a little bit. <laughs> so if you would, for the audience, in case they've missed it, uh, would you tell them a little bit about your history with Dave's Daredevil podcast? Yeah, that was a show that began in November of 2013, meaning we just went past the 10-year mark of the first Ooh, episode. Wow. And it really just came about because I had a fanfic story bouncing around in my head. At that time, I was doing Pad Smash, which is a Incredible Hulk podcast. But I suddenly found myself gravitating towards this character, Daredevil. I just realized there's so much to him. Uh, but I also knew I didn't want to do an index show. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's a lot of weak issues early on in Daredevil. Yeah. Before he hits the stride. So I, I developed um, what Trentus Magnus calls the spinner rack style, where I just covered the issues I wanted in whatever order I wanted. And then somewhere along the way, we end, I ended up at Two True Freaks. And then the show came to a rough period and came to an end in G January of 2020. So it's been gone for four years at this point. Still, that's like a six-year run. That's a really impressive. Off and on, yeah. For a long time, I basically let it sit at Two True Freaks, but I've now moved it over to its own archive where I recreated the original website. Because originally it was on a site called DaredevilPodcast.com. Do not, do not put that in your browser. Uh-oh. Because as uh -oh. soon as I let that domain name lapse... An adult site took it over. Oh, goodness gracious. Apparently, that's what happens. And I don't know what the connection is because it's in, it's Asian. It's in an Asian writing. But just go to Dave's Marvel Universe and check it out there. It, it was the <laughs> hand. That's, that's who, that's who oh, uh, there you took, go. It, took it. <laughs> so the show's still out there for people to listen to, right? Yep. It's archived. Apparently, somebody was listening to it today because I posted a, a picture of, of Matt in his Daredevil attire. And I realized he's holding a torch and I don't know why. That's not going to help him. Uh, but somebody said I was listening to that earlier today. I'm like, wow, it's still it's still got circulation, which blows my mind. Well, it's a fantastic show, Dave. Don't get me wrong. You are still producing fantastic shows over there on the Bat Pod and everything else you've done. It's just this particular show, you know, and it's, it's also the feature of what we're talking about today. So I'm glad that it's available for people out there. I loved that you used to get way, way in the weeds and like, you know, obsessive. And I mean that in a compliment about <laughs> geography. You know, like the best I can explain is Dave would find a geography, you know, location in the comic and you would figure out where it was.
was in real life. Is mm-hmm. that fair to say? Yeah. It was because Ohatmu uh, had addresses. And just like anybody, as I'm going through a comic, like, I wonder where Matt's apartment is. And it just kind of developed into, as you perfectly called it, an obsession. <laughs> to the point where actually, when I went to Manhattan, as long as I could get my bearings, I could give people directions. And did. <laughs> It's like, no, you want to go up two blocks and over one, and then you'll see, you know, the Empire State Building and Madison Square Garden. So basically, you could tell people where to find Josie's bar, you know, when they're walking around the uh, New York and get him lost, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can easily show you where it is. It, it's right at the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge. It was a, at one time, I haven't looked this up, it was a, a bar called Cowboy Seahorse. I'm like, that is the bar. Oh, that wow. Is, that is a modernized version. That took forever, but... So you got to wonder if the artists, you know, if any of them lived in Manhattan, you know, just based it on real locations themselves. I know Frank Miller did. And I there was one point, I'm super proud of this, to be honest. I figured out the angle where he would have been sitting to draw a picture of this building. That's amazing. That is amazing, Dave. Wow. Lots of extra free time back in the day. <laughs> I think about that all the time, how much I used to have more free time. <laughs> uh, there's another thing you did on the show where you would talk about sneaky lawyer tricks all the time. So mm-hmm. it, it, explain that to me. So Matt was always pulling sneaky lawyer tricks to be Daredevil and not betray his father's wishes. I mean, things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. And, and the term sneaky lawyer trick comes from the movie High Fidelity, which is a classic in my opinion. Oh, agreed. But, agreed. But Matt's a contradiction. He's a blind man who can see better than sighted people. He's a lawyer, but also a vigilante. He's a man of faith who dresses as the devil. So he makes all kinds of excuses. Like becoming Daredevil to avenge his father's death was putting on a mask to be somebody else, to not break his promise. Mm. And really, if you read Daredevil issue one, there's no reason for him to continue being Daredevil after that. Like he's fulfilled his mission. Mm-hmm. So he continues to justify his need to be Daredevil in many different ways. So he's always cheating the system through some technicality or justifying it to himself or even, you know, disillusioning himself about his father. You know, when I read the books, I really began to realize Jack Murdoch was not a great guy, not a great father. No. But Matt's always like, he was the best. He was great. He just whitewashes that memory and it continues to propel him forward. There's a broken psychology to Matt, which is what makes him just just a great character to delve into. Oh, yeah. I, and I, I'm glad you mentioned the broken psychology. A lot of people don't even know that. I mean, Matt is seriously a broken person. Um, mm-hmm. Very much so. <laughs> now, there's there's a lot to talk about here, folks. And again, happy birthday, Matt Murdock. 60, 60 years. That's crazy. Um, to provide a focus for us this episode, because otherwise we'd be all over the board, right? I mean, there's a million things to talk about. I figured what we could do is talk about our love of Daredevil. And then what we're going to do, folks, is we're going to dive into one specific issue. And being completely selfish, uh, I picked the issue that made me a lifelong Daredevil collector, uh, specifically issue 268. And uh, it's it's kind of an unusual issue for Daredevil, as we'll get into it, but I think it hits a lot of the important beats about why we love Daredevil. So, and, and I got to say, Dave, I'm so excited to be talking about Daredevil. I'm so excited to be talking about it with you. I, I don't get a chance to talk about this character very much, and I just absolutely love him. And I can only think of two other occasions where I've had a chance to talk about him on a podcast. Once was with Ryan Daly, where I basically shut down his Power of Fishnets podcast. I'm pretty sure that was the last episode <laughs> they ever did, uh, where we talked about Typhoid Mary and Daredevil and things like that. Uh, that was in April 2019. And then Cisco and I got to talk about Daredevil eh, not too long ago, back in October. Um, actually, it was October 2022. I take that back. Anyways, Fire and Water Team Up. We talked about Marvel Team Up 141, which was Daredevil and Spider-Man. But beyond that, I haven't had a chance to really dive into the character, so I am excited to be here to do this. And so let me start by asking you, what is your personal origin story with Daredevil? Like, what what made you fall in love with the character? Uh, To set it up, it was a crate, a milk crate, a plastic milk crate of coverless comics, which I didn't know at the time meant that they were probably meant to be pulped or something. And somebody snagged them and and took them to a gift shop at the American Legion that my grandparents worked at. 
And in it was what I found out later, Marvel Adventures number five. Mm -hmm. It was a short-lived preprint book, reprinted Daredevil number 26. This issue has everything I love about Daredevil Stiltman. (laughs) Okay. Gene Colon art. Mm. Gene Colon, no matter what happens from here on out, Gene Colon is the Daredevil artist. Okay. All right. It had Mike Murdoch, which (laughs) is Matt's fictional twin. (laughs) Which is Matt pretending to be his own twin, which one of my favorite moments in podcasting. I was on uh, Married with Comics with Jonathan Schaefer-Hames and Maggie Schaefer-Hames. Oh, yeah. And Jonathan was aware of this. So I mentioned Mike Murdoch and Maggie just did this. Wait, what? (laughs) Is that real? (laughs) I got to tell you, like when I started collecting Daredevil, specifically seeking out the Mike Murdoch themed issues was like something I made a point of. Mm -hmm. It was so ludicrous. I loved it. But I fell in love immediately. I'd seen the character via the Secret Wars action figure line. Mm -hmm. Knew nothing about him. And then just everything about it, he's blind. I loved his supporting cast immediately. The best part was no other kids my age had any idea who Daredevil was. Mm. They knew Hulk. They knew Captain America, Spider-Man. Daredevil was mine. And then as I grew older, you kept finding – I kept finding issues like 241. Daredevil 241. And I guarantee you, everybody owns this issue. Okay. It's one of two comics that I'm, I'm finding consistent in every comic collection. This and Batman 488. 241, by the way, is a Mike Zek cover with Daredevil on a, a ladder by the side of the roof with his radar sense going out. Gorgeous cover. But oh, yeah. owns it. I absolutely own that issue. I yep. know what you're- <laughs> <laughs> Well, the reason is the other one is Batman 48. These kept ending up in three packs that you'd find at the supermarket. Oh, so I okay. guess they were overprinted in some way, shape, or form. All right. But in that issue, Daredevil's interacting with the Fat Boys, this group of kids um, you've got this kid who made a Daredevil mask out of paper sack, and I never got a chance to do that. But he's in parts of New York that are falling through the cracks. Mm-hmm. It's during the Nascenti time. This just happens to be a Todd McFarlane drawn issue in his first Marvel issue, by the way. Oh, wow. I liked the area that he occupied so much. And then as I grew older and more aware, it's like you just learn how much of a train wreck Matt Murdock is. He has good intentions. He's generally a good person. He has good a good outlook, let's say. But he keeps failing. And then failing and coming back again and failing again. It's a cycle. I mean, we talk about Spider-Man being the most human and most relatable. I think Daredevil actually has that market cornered. Because I've seen a lot of myself in Daredevil. Just learning to be a better human being. Learning to respect other people. Growing older and growing more aware. Um, I see a lot of that in myself and other people. Just the human nature that we we have to learn as we go. If I can touch on that real quick. I think you're probably right. And I think Spider-Man is the most human in an idealistic way. Mm Because Peter always makes the right choice, right? I mean, there's been times where he doesn't a little bit here or there. But in general, he always makes the right choice. And that's what you want in your hero. Whereas Matt, still very human, Matt does not always make the right choice. In fact, Matt makes the wrong choice a lot of times. But he's doing it because he thinks it's the right thing to help someone else. But it ends up torpedoing his life or somebody else's life or whatever. So Matt is probably the more more realistic version of of, of a human being in a a hero. Hmm. That's it's just there's there's a like I said we talked about broken psychology. This guy is you could have a field day. Oh my gosh, seriously damaged goods. Yeah, uh, for me and by the way, thanks for asking. Uh, my origin were Daredevil and how I love the character. I I was trying to figure out how to sum this up, and then I realized uh, I went back in my email. And I found something. And this goes back to all the stuff I was talking about in the old days when you had more time, right? So uh, this is an example of me having more time. Because 10 years ago, 10 years ago, I wrote a letter to a little podcast called 
Dave's Daredevil podcast. And it explained my origin with Daredevil. Uh, this is addressed January 3rd, 2014. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to just read this chunk of this piece of the letter because it, it answers this question quite succinctly. So, all right, here we go. <clears throat> Dramatic reading, folks, from Shag 10 years ago. I had more hair. The very first Daredevil comic I bought was issue 223 in the summer of 1985. It was a Secret Wars 2 crossover. I distinctly remember, because I was reading the comic at home, when my mother informed me that a reverend from a local church was planning to stop by that afternoon. Now, my 12-year-old self panicked. I had a comic with a horned devil as the main character? A devil comic? You know, if the Reverend saw this comic, it was without a doubt a one-way trip to H.E. Double Hockey Sticks, or at the very least a verbal beatdown from my parents. So I hid the comic in my room at the bottom of a pile consisting of every object on the second floor that wasn't nailed down. I couldn't relax the whole time the Reverend was there. I thought, surely that cross around his neck was scalding hot from the presence of that Satan-promoting comic one flight above. Couldn't his X-ray Godovision see through the ceiling right to this four-color abomination? Not that I truly believe the comic supported Satanism, but I was positive that no one would look beyond the title and the red horn suit. Agonizing hours later, the Reverend left. He was kind enough not to mention the contraband comic, which he must have sensed within our den of sin. Whew, somehow, I dodged that exorcism. Now, it was four years later when I bought my next Daredevil comic, and that was Daredevil 268, with a stunning John Romita Jr. cover featuring a shadowy hornhead holding a hangman's noose. I was entranced by the cover, and the inside sealed the deal. I was a Daredevil fan from that moment on. Next, I picked up the Born Again trade paperback, which was one of the first trades I ever owned, and quickly began amassing pack issues. So yes, I cut my teeth, or my horns in this case, on Frank Miller's Magnus Opus and Anna Cindy's Dark Road Trip. Luckily, I survived the experience. So there it is. That's that's the letter I wrote, Dave, 10 years ago. And uh, again, referencing back to having more time to... Because, damn, I was a much better writer 10 years ago than I am now. Uh, <laughs> so I, I'm a little jealous when I go back and re-wish I could write back then. So, uh, I uh, yeah, so the issue we're going to cover today was the first one that really got me into it. And I, I do think Secret Wars 2, uh, and I talked about this one time with Sean Ross on, on their Secret Wars show, is that I really do think Secret Wars 2 got people to try other books they wouldn't have tried. And Daredevil was one that made me, you know, I became familiar with the character because of that comic. So I, I think it genuinely helped me when I decided to become a Daredevil reader. I still just love this story. I remember this. <laughs> I remember you telling me this and I'm like, I just picture a little shag sweating. The funny thing is 10 years later, I'm working in ministry. <laughs> we don't have X-ray vision. I can tell you that. So <laughs> I wish I'd known that then. <laughs> Some little kids probably nervous when you come around. Just think about it that way. So wow. for me, I, so I, I picked this issue we're going to cover today. 268 was the first one I bought. I kept buying, and I had to look this up. I kept buying Daredevil every single month for 17 years. 17 years, which blows my mind. You know, outside of the Justice League, I can't think of a single title or character I stuck with that long. You know, and after that 17 years was over, I just, at the time, I just stopped because I don't, I don't know exactly what made me stop. I guess it was maybe the price point or I wasn't reading it. I would let it stay, stack up for a year before I'd finally read them. I just, you know, I'd read them in bunches anyway. But I still continue to drop in and out of the various series using the Marvel Unlimited app, which is fantastic to that. Uh, I, I figure, I don't know, this is just a guesstimate, but I figure I probably read at least 400 plus Daredevil comics. Um, I don't even know what issue they're on now. Probably, what, 800 or something, I would guess? It's hard to tell with all the reboots. Right. Not that I'm annoyed by that. That, but 
Well, I know with every reboot, you just got to wait long enough, and then they're going to do the, the big legacy numbering. And then I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, that's what number we're on. Okay. Uh, you, you mentioned action figures. So I didn't have the Secret Wars action figure. I missed out. So in 1990, which was a year after I started collecting Daredevil, I got the Toy Biz Daredevil action figure. And I would keep him in my shirt pocket. And like he, he'd be hanging out. I did this with my Dr. Fate figure, too. But they'd be hanging out in my shirt pocket with like the little arms sticking over the pocket. Yeah, I was, I was a chick magnet, let me tell you, folks. Um, now, to be fair, I was working at a comic book store, so having Daredevil in your pocket wasn't the worst thing. Is that a Daredevil in your pocket? Are you happy to see me? <laughs> <laughs> Nowadays, I do have three Daredevil figures proudly displayed in my office. One is the TV version, Charlie Cox. Uh, the other is the motocross Daredevil. I absolutely had to buy that when they produced that figure. I was so excited. And then I have one um, of the classic red and yellow, which was a gift from Ryan Daly, which is – I've kept that one on the card. It just looks so damn cool. Bless you, Ryan Daly. Just for uh, no reason. <laughs> other than you're Ryan Daly. <laughs> I also have a Daredevil statue bust. It's either the first or second bust I ever bought of a, of a character. It is Daredevil. I just love it. I guess one of the things I love about him is that he's vulnerable, right? You know, he's, he's human. He's physically human. He's emotionally human. He is broken physically quite often, and he's an emotional wreck, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the guy, as you mentioned, he, he's, his life is always in a, in a disaster, and a lot of it is self-inflicted. He is very self-destructive. People love to read a story about someone pulling themselves back up. And that's what Daredevil is a lot of times. He's self-destructive, he messes up his life, and then he rebuilds it. And that is something that you just can't help but enjoy. And another thing I love, too, is the, is, the, is the legal stuff, right? The legal system and the justice, the courtroom stuff. A lot of times, secret identities don't matter in a superhero comic, right? You know, Peter's a photographer. Yeah, but how much is he really doing with the Daily Bugle? You know, and I'm sure a Spider-Man fan would tell me how wrong I am for saying that, so I apologize. I was not a dig of Spider-Man. But I'm just saying that uh, Matt's career plays directly into his superhero life. They're mm-hmm. intimately connected. You know, the, the protecting the innocents on the streets, protecting them in the courtroom with his fists or his brains. It's all fascinating. Well, and they also contrast each other. And I think you nailed something. Daredevil is the people weekly of superheroes. We all <laughs> like to see that celebrity that's fallen from grace, the Danny yeah. Bonaducci's or something, and they've pulled themselves back together in the cover, you know, thumbs up and big smile. That's Matt Murdock. Or Robert Downey Jr. You know, mm-hmm. we, we all loved him in the, you know, in his youth, then he falls apart and then he pulls himself back up, you know, that kind of thing. But Matt keeps doing it over and over and over. Now, and another thing, and, and you and I, we've kidded about this before, uh, is that I, I have a phrase where I say everyone goes through a Batman phase, right? I say this to people all the time, and it gets people really worked up. I say everyone goes through a Batman phase, and then everyone comes out of their Batman phase. I certainly did that in the 90s. I was a big Batman fan. I was all in, and I eventually came out of that phase as well. And many of my podcasting friends, including the man on the other side of the microphone, Dave, has told <laughs> me that you can have a lifelong Batman phase. And I, I suppose I can respect that, because uh, my lifelong Batman phase is actually a lifelong Daredevil phase. Because there's a lot to be said for comparing Batman and Daredevil, wouldn't you think? No, not as much as you might think. Oh, really? Oh, interesting. Okay. Tell me why I I'm wrong. I see what you're thinking because you're talking about a, a, you know somebody who's on the streets, who's a vigilante. Daredevil occupies a very different corner. Okay. Bruce is definitely damaged, but you're never going to see Bruce screw up the way Matt does. Oh, okay. Fair. Because DC won't allow it. Yeah. Matt, Matt, <laughs> Matt is also, um, and, and I say this knowing that we're going to get, you're probably going to get letters, so address it to Shag. Matt's a person <laughs> of faith and Batman is not. Okay. And Matt's faith is in the legal system and in God. And yet he contrasts that by going, you know, what he says is supplementing the legal system. And he does that in a visage that is contrasting to God. Bruce doesn't contrast anything. He doesn't necessarily believe in the system because Gotham is corrupt. So there's not that same moral faith filled, you know, journey for him. This is a job for Bruce. 
So I get where there's some comparison because they both, you know, they're both non-powered vigilantes to some extent in Matt's case, but it's a very, very different type. Matt's not hard internally like Bruce is. Like you said, Matt's very vulnerable. That's really insightful. And I'm glad you brought up the faith stuff because I meant to mention that as well. I love the fact that he's a man of faith because you don't see that enough in comic books. Mm-hmm. And it is an interesting contrast where, like you said, you know, he's in, in the courtroom, he's the man of law and on the streets, he's a vigilante. Those are completely opposites. You know, here he's a man of faith and yet he's in a double costume, complete opposites. And Matt's a complete set of contradictions. Wow. Man, yeah. It's almost like you could talk about this stuff for six years, Dave. It's interesting. (laughs) Like you've thought about it a little bit or not. (laughs) Speaking of what you've thought about, so what are some of your favorite eras or creators uh, of the series, of Daredevil's run? I mentioned this early on, but Gene Colan, easily the goat. Um, I know you love this as well as I do, the Kiesel Nord run. Hold on. I'm going to interrupt you. Let's let's talk about Gene Colan for a second. Okay. So talk to me about it, because like I, I... I'll be straight up and honest. I struggle with a lot of the Daredevil comics before Frank Miller's run. Like, I enjoy them, and I can enjoy them for what they were at the time, but I don't get passionate about them. So the Gene Colan run, I know it's extremely popular with people. I'm not there. I'm not I'm not discounting it, but I just haven't got there myself. So tell me what I'm looking for. Is it is it just solely the art? Is it the writing as well? Tell me what I need to know to fall in love with Gene Colan as Daredevil artist. The writing is going to be all over the place because you got Stan Lee, Roy Thomas, Jerry Conway, the, the natural progression. But with that, you have, and I use this word very specifically, definitive. I use the word definitive, look at Daredevil. Mm-hmm. He only had a few artists up until Gene Colan. You had Bill Everett, who was their first one, mm-hmm. and then he left. You had Joe Orlando's. I feel like I'm forgetting somebody else. Wouldn't Wally Wood a big... W- Wally Wood, yes. Wally Wood, thank you. And then you had a very brief but beautiful stint by John Romita that could have been definitive mm. if he hadn't been hired for some web shooter. <laughs> and then right. in comes Gene Colan, who has this darker tone. Like, he very much lends himself to horror, which is why you have him on Tomb of Dracula. Sure. And you suddenly have a three-dimensional world. Even when you have somebody like the Owl, somebody who I love, but I have to admit he's goofy looking. Mm -hmm. You have a tone. Colon would always find new ways to turn the image. And he even talks about this in the Daredevil movie special features. Like, I always wanted every action sequence to be different. So you have these dizzying moments with, like, Stiltman, for example, where Daredevil's swinging around this towering guy. And the camera angles are just off the charts amazing. Hmm. Or you have Leapfrog jumping off of a, a you know, court stand and you're seeing the bottom of his feet and you're looking up at him. It's just – it's the composition. Okay. All right. Is is something that defines Daredevil. And there have been some bad artists, but for the most part, Daredevil's had some phenomenal artists. But they all launch off of what Gene Colan created over the many years. He was a Daredevil artist. That's incredible, incredibly helpful to know. Okay. I appreciate that. Because, again, I – I haven't, and maybe it's because I struggle with the stories, or maybe I'm just not a, I'm mostly a, a, a Bronze Age forward kind of guy. I do struggle with older stuff. Um, so maybe I, I need to look at it that way, and that will help me find my in. So, all right, I appreciate it. There was a weird period. They couldn't get a handle on Daredevil. Mm-hmm. You have the first issue, which Brian Michael Bendis points out is noir. And in the first issue absolutely is. And then you go to the next issue, and he's fighting Electro. So tonally, they took a long time to get Daredevil's tone down. Yeah. But you're right. Around the Bronze Age is right where they started really finding the rhythm. So I interrupted you a moment ago. You were going to talk then about, uh, I think it was you were going to talk about uh, Kessel and Nord. Is that right? Oh, yes. I love that run. That was so far. It was ahead of its time because the same things that Wade got praised for, and rightfully so, are what Kessel and Nord were doing. It's Daredevil who, as you mentioned, has his life together for the most part. He's on a good track. 
you have an upbeat feeling. You have Daredevil as a detective early on. You have interesting villains like Mr. Hyde, mm-hmm. Pyro. It was just, it was such an underrated run at its time. And I love that now it's getting its due because it's actually, it's in a, it's an epic collection. Oh, is it really? Oh, that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, it's shocking to me. I looked back that that run only lasted a year, which mm-hmm. it, it, to me, it's so much longer in my head because it was it just after dark, dark, darkity, dark, dark runs of Daredevil for years, it suddenly said, you know what? Daredevil's allowed to have fun. He's allowed to be swashbuckling and have joy. And we're not going to ignore everything that happened. We're just going to tell a new story without ignoring what happened and do it in a different way. And it was so energizing. Mm -hmm. Like you said about Mark Wade's run following sort of a similar path. I mentioned to Carl Kessel a couple times, just in various formats, whether it be on Facebook or face to face, whatever. Just, I, you know, I I said, and I probably chose my words poorly, but I said, you know, you know, Mark Wade owes you a big thanks because of your run really paved the way. And Carl was very nice about it. He's like, he goes, you know, hey, I appreciate you saying that, but no, that's not right. You know, Mark's doing his own thing. He goes, you know, certainly we had kind of like minds, but Mark did his own thing. But I, I still think that it's a, it's the proto version of what Mark was going mm-hmm. for. Maybe that's a better way to say it's a, such an uplifting run. I love the stuff with the legal. They did they they actually made some of the legal stuff interesting. They the new firm they were working. I don't want to say it in case anyone wants to read it, but how it tied in with Foggy. Foggy had a key role in the story, and that had been so long since that had happened. Oh, such a great. I'm glad you mentioned that run. That's a fantastic run. Yeah, I knew you loved it, so we're on the same page. And I have found that I like Bendis. Now that we can read it in chunks. When it was coming out monthly, it was just, is something going to happen in this book? And then if when you read it in trade paperback, it's like, okay, the pacing is a little bit more um, palatable. And I know you said, I believe you like Brubaker better. So I, I I have a harsh relationship with Bendis. It's it, That is the point that it broke me. Um, that, that must have been the end of the 17-year run because that, that is when I left the book. Uh, now, there was some amazing stuff in there when they revealed Daredevil to the public, that great cover where it's on the front of the newspaper. You know, that was shocking, really cool stuff. But it just went on so long. And it didn't feel like anything was happening, like you said. And for me, there's I have an issue with Daredevil in general. When you read lots of these comics as we had, it does start to feel wash, rinse, repeat. You know, Matt falls in love with the love of his life. By the way, there's been dozens of the love of his life. <laughs> um, the relationship is put in jeopardy, and eventually it all falls apart, the relationship, because of the Daredevil identity. And then at some point, Matt becomes self-destructive, as we mentioned, and his secret identity, that whole life just gets destroyed, and he has to rebuild everything from the ground up. Now, yes, that is awesome to read that rebuilding story, but after you read it over and over and over, it does start to feel wash, rinse, repeat. And it kind of feels like every writer's trying to tell their version of Frank Miller's Born Again. So here mm-hmm. we are in Bendis's. The art is dark. The art, it's, 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 it's suffering and it's misery. It's very decompressed. So I actually dropped the book. I did eventually read it all from the library, maybe. I can't remember. And then I read the Ed Brubaker stuff. And I did, I was like, the, the Brubaker stuff, I really connected with more. Uh, and I don't know whether that's just because I had a, 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 I don't know, a burr up my butt because of Bendis or whether it was just more. But I did enjoy the Brubaker stuff more. I thought that was really interesting. I think Bendis might have broke me because I, the, the Brubaker stuff is a blind spot. I don't know that I've read it. Oh, okay. Which is something I can rectify thanks to digital comics, but that might be a, a, a to-do thing. By the way, I have you to thank for being a Marvel Unlimited subscriber because you kept talking about it on Dave's Daredevil podcast, so I decided to give it a try and I fell in love with it, so that is your fault, sir. Well, they never once gave me a kickback, so... <laughs> 
You know, before we we got more runs to mention, but I do want to say something. And I'm actually going to credit Siskoid from our network. We were chatting with him and some friends recently, and he said that uh, he's he said it's possible that Daredevil is the best long running superhero comic with all volumes considered as one from the cons- basis of consistency of quality of storytelling across the entire line. And that got me thinking. He may be right. I mean, for long-term characters. You know, if you've got a character that's unique, like, let's say, Neil Gaiman's Sandman, that's different. That's one writer, one voice, period. You know, or James Robinson's Starman. Again, one voice, one writer, period. But when you look at the life of Spider-Man across 60 years, you look at the life of Superman across 80 years, and a lot of inconsistency, you know, some great eras, some bad eras, whatever. Daredevil, I mean, sure, there's some bad periods, but for the most part, they have had some of the absolute the best writers and artists on that series. Easily. Of any character. Cisco, let's take maybe out of that. Cisco is 100% correct, as per usual. <laughs> um, I was thinking just sheer creative team. Even, even I mean, you had, you know, we've had Stan Lee, of yep. course. You've had people like Marv Wolfman in there. Oh, yeah. You had, of course, Frank Miller, Denny O'Neill, and that's a run, it's a mixed bag. Yeah. Uh, but he was followed up by Ann Nacenti and John Romita Jr. Yeah. They moved into the motocross era. That's, that's, that's debatable. I know you have some love for that, but, but then the Kiesel Nord, um, you had, bless his heart, Kevin Smith, but you had Palmiotti and, uh, Kazada, David Mack. I was going to jump back of it. Dave Mazzuccelli was in there too. Mazzuccelli, yeah. yeah. I can't believe I forgot him. Yeah. But even the most recent runs, Chip Zdarsky just finished a run. Mm-hmm. I have not read the last parts of it, but what I read was like off the charts great. Charles Soule, which I, I wanted to bring up, A, he worked magic coming out of the Mark Wade run. Yeah. How hard was that job? I mean, okay. <laughs> Let, let's mention the Mark Wade run real quick. Mark Wade run was phenomenal. It, it, mm-hmm. it, we've, it, I don't need to go deep on it because we already said a lot of the same things about the Carl Castle run. Just the uplifting, celebrating what's already happened, not ignoring it and moving forward and just pulls on all the right heartstrings in the good way. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the moments of pure joy are in there. The heartbreak, the sorrow. The Mark Wade's run is, in my opinion, one of the best runs done. Then mm-hmm. poor Charles Soule. Poor Charles Soule, the guy who writes Star Wars books now, uh, had to come in and follow that. And how the hell do you do that? And you do a 180, and he did it right. I remember messaging you after mm-hmm. reading the first couple Charles Soule's issues, being like, I don't know that I like this. You know, uh, I've been reading Mark Wade's, and I, it was happy. This is not happy. This is dark. This feels 90s. I don't know. And you're like, stick with it to, I don't remember what issue it was, but like, stick it with it to a certain point. All will be explained. And damn. Mm-hmm. Wow, what a great run. Yeah. And I was I was glad to hear that that was the outcome because I, you weren't the only one. There were people that had doubts and, and by I was ahead enough to know, okay, he does the impossible at one point. There is something left over from the Mark Wade run. Like you can't put that genie back in the bottle in any satisfactory way. And I've been proven wrong. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. But other people have messaged me. I didn't, I don't know that I've gotten the follow-up, but that's why I wanted to bring it up with you to see if it did pan out. And I'm so glad it did. It was, it ends up being a weird run at the end, but a delightfully weird one, if that makes sense. Well, he gets, he gets a sidekick in there. I mean, mm-hmm. the, you get some amazingly interesting villains. Cause I mean, Daredevil's villains have always been fascinating and scary. And it's in, in a little bit like, and this is going to sound like a dig. So you mentioned the motocross era, right? Mm-hmm. Which was uh, the DG Chichesterson, Ch- 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 I guess. Chichester. Yeah. Yeah. His era, which is a total mixed bag, right? Like some of it's great. Some of it is not good. But I felt like Charles Soul Run looked at that and said, okay, this is what DG was trying to do. 
I'm going to do yeah. it my way, but it has sort of that same 90s dark vibe. And I, and I don't mean in an extreme way. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm trying to say it in a positive way. You guys probably aren't hearing it that way because you're thinking 90s. But I just feel like there's a, it's a spiritual successor that did it a little better. Yeah, that's a perfect way to put it. And it, yeah, it exists in a dark world, but it is not in itself dark. Yeah, yeah. And then, all right, we got to mention Frank Miller's run, right? Mm-hmm. So probably the most celebrated, probably the most reprinted. I mean, is that fair to say? Would you say that's the most famous Daredevil run? Oh, yeah, easily. Okay. The, well, there's two Frank Miller runs. We should mm-hmm. clarify that. One is more extensive than the other. And that is, that's one where he built the mythology of Daredevil. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, he brought in the hand, he brought in Electra, Stick, he redefined Kingpin, who was a B-level ridiculous Spider-Man villain, and in what was it, four panels, changed him into a legitimate f- threat just by changing the lighting. Yeah. It uh it was a game changer. I I often forget that. I forget about how much he rewrote Daredevil and and changed the whole trajectory. So he does he does deserve a lot of credit for that. You're right. And then there's the second run, which is Born Again, and I th- I'm, I'm not going to touch that. I, I, I've heard people say it's the greatest Daredevil story of all time. I do not agree, but I'll leave that on the table. Interesting. Uh, for me, see, I, I went from this issue here, 268, to Born Again. Hmm. So I uh, no choice but to unfairly weight Born Again as incredible. Um, now, I haven't reread it probably in 10, 15 years. I don't know. Uh, actually, I probably it's probably been 10. I probably read it for your show just because I was in a Daredevil mode at that point. But I love that because it, it's that rebuilding, right? I mean, it's what they're chasing with the Netflix series is Born Again because it's it's all about Matt at his lowest and he, re, he has to bring himself back up again. And I, I felt like of all the, you know, Matt torpedoes, everything has to rebuild, this is the one that set the tone for me. Um, so I love it. Could it be argued that he, the other half of the run is better? Probably. But for me, my heart belongs to Born Again. I don't want there to be any misunderstanding. I'm not saying Born Again is bad. I don't think it's one of the best Daredevil stories of all time. You heard it here but, first, guys. Yep. <laughs> J. David Weeder said it sucks. That's what I heard him say. Clever editing. You're going to make it sound like I just trash it. <laughs> right. Exactly right. <laughs> um, and then the last run I wanted to mention, I don't, if you have any more runs, jump in here. But Andesenti and John Romita Jr., right? Yep. So, I'm saving that for the end. Okay. Per- well, you go then. Well, you know, this issue, I read it a few times. I read it earlier today, and then I took a nap. And as I started to drift to sleep, I realized I've been reading this run entirely wrong. Hmm. I've enjoyed this run. This was one of those runs that I ran into with that uh, 241. Mm -hmm. But I've been looking at the run completely wrong. It was something I couldn't put my thumb on. But I'm going to talk to that when we get into the issue. Oh, okay. But I think, I don't know if it has elevated the run or changed its stature yet, because it's so, it's only been a few hours in my head. Okay. But I went back very quickly and read several issues leading up to this as well, so... Well, we talked about Charles Soule being in an unenviable position, right, following Mark Wade. So here you've got, you know, Frank Miller does an amazing run, right? And then Denny O'Neill writes it for a while. But really, there's no ongoing – other than Denny O'Neill, there's no real ongoing writer. They jumped around to a few writers, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Anne Nascenti is the next long run. And that's got to be a tough job. And she came in and told a very street level, in, in my opinion, told a very street level version for the first half of her run, all about Hell's Kitchen. You got to know the kids of the t- of the area. You got to know the air, the 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 thugs. You really got to know that part of the town. And it was you know with John Romita drawing, it was dirty, it was edgy, and I love it. And again, I'm programmed to like it because I came in with this issue, right? But then the second half is a road trip, which. The road trip part has some amazing high points, and it has some points that aren't as high for me. So it's a it's a mixed bag a little bit in there. But uh, I'm very interested to hear your perspective on this. For me, it's 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 my absolute favorite run of Daredevil is Anna Sinti and John Romita Jr. I think it's a perfect marriage of it, and I think it's um, 
again, a little program because of my early days. And now, more as I read interviews with Anna Senti, I find she's very, very interesting. And after watching the Chris Claremont um, documentary kind of thing, mm-hmm. I think it was on Amazon, I've decided that Anna Senti is probably the most fun comic writer to party with in the 80s. Uh, yes. It's probably, she was probably super amazingly cool. So I wish I'd had that opportunity. But I can tell you that she, uh, she hung out with Mike Carlin and, and Mark Grunewald. Mm-hmm. They did a show called Cheap Laughs. It was on public access, just a comedy show, and she was she was completely hilarious. So you're not wrong. I bet she was. Yeah, <laughs> she's amazing. <laughs> so this run, uh, I was we're not far apart in age, as we discussed off air. Um, so this run was what was going on when I was getting into Daredevil. When when I you know the old back issues, mm-hmm. this was what was on stands. It is very influential. Okay. So John Romita Jr.'s Daredevil is what I pictured Daredevil looking like, like the the shorter gloves, the shorter boots, the little nuances he puts in. Mm-hmm. And then it extends from there. So it is, it's an important run. I just, it was something I didn't catch. I wouldn't have caught as a kid. I got only a few issues in with Darius Daredevil podcast. So I didn't have a chance until now to really disseminate it. And I'm looking back, I'm like, I'm going to have to reread this because it's not, it is not a superhero story. No. This run is, I put it in our notes. It's something like Alan Moore's Swamp Thing or a Vertigo book. Just done just enough under the radar to not get the, like the mature reader label. That's fair. Yeah. In in the first half, the stuff with Typhoid Mary is what Mm -hmm. grabbed me Uh, because that's you know because I picked up this issue and I immediately bought all the back issues, so I really was living in Anne Nascenti's first half of her run. And the I mean the Typhoid Mary stuff, you want to talk about Matt making terrible decisions? There's some really (laughs) awful decisions in there, and that comic is I I, I can't think of any other way to (laughs) it's. I, I, I may edit this out in a second here. It is dirty, nasty, sweaty sex is what that the first half of this run is. It, it You're is not wrong. It is a me- yeah. That's what it is. I mean, there is so much heat uh, and passion and sex and sweat and everything going on that it's like wow. This is and and I don't mean that in a filthy way. It's upsetting because he cheats on his girlfriend. Uh, but it's I mean wow. It's. Anyway, it's powerful stuff. It really is. Mm-hmm. Issue 259, I got to mention this. So issue 259 is Matt. He's got the crap beat out of him because, let's face it, he's Matt. And in front of him are all these villains from Anna era. You've got Kingpin. You've got Typhoid Mary. You've got, um, oh gosh, is it Bushwhacker? That's not his name, is it? The guy with the Bushwhacker, gun yeah. on his arm? Okay. You've got uh, Bullet. <laughs> you've got all these different characters that are there about to beat the crap out of him. I had that on a t-shirt. Like I, one of those, I don't know, graffiti press or I don't know, whoever, whoever was printing t-shirts back in the 90s, I had that t-shirt uh, during this this era of reading Daredevil. I wore that shirt till literally the cloth was just falling apart. I love that shirt. I have looked so many times on eBay to see if someone just had one in a bag somewhere and wanted to sell it, whatever. Uh, can't find it anywhere, but it was an amazing shirt, and uh, I would wear it today if I could get my hands on it. So I didn't know that shirt existed. Now I'm going to head to eBay. <laughs> well, it didn't have the trade dress, uh, so it didn't have Daredevil at the top, right? it was, and it was a white shirt, so it, it took off the dark blue background behind it, but it was just the characters. But anyway, it's a great shirt. If you find it on eBay and you buy it, I will never forgive you. (laughs) So we've talked a little bit about uh, the Netflix stuff and and Daredevil on screen. So let's touch on that briefly. I mean, that could be a whole on show unto itself. But in general, you know, we've got what? We've got Netflix TV show. We've got the She-Hulk appearance. We've got more Netflix. uh, I'm sorry. Now it's Disney Plus in development, you know, or the Ben Affleck movie. So tell me your feelings on Daredevil on screen. I've rarely been disappointed, oddly mm. enough. Even even if you go back to like 1990, 
Trial of the Incredible Hulk, which did not advertise Daredevil at all. But the moment this train goes by and I see, you know, Daredevil rules or whatever it is painted, I'm like, oh, I'm in. I was just completely shocked. I was like, that's my boy. It didn't leave an impact on anybody else but me, apparently, and, and anybody who already knew him. Wrong, sir. All right. So I have a confession to make, and, and maybe this could be used against me in a court of law. I don't know. But after seeing that episode and seeing that, I'm glad you mentioned that graffiti. This is Daredevil rules. I then proceeded to write Daredevil rules on the bathroom stalls at my school. <laughs> allegedly. Right, allegedly. Uh, specifically because of the trial of the Incredible Hulk. I'm not kidding. That influenced me enough to allegedly write graffiti on walls. <laughs> I was so excited by it. So you were, not, awesome. you were not the only one uh, uh, energized by that, sir. And then, and then it's like, it's, it's this big space where nothing happened and then they start developing the Ben Affleck movie mm-hmm. which was supposed to be an in a smaller indie movie and, and then X-Men hit big so they started bumping it up hotly anticipating that movie looking every day for new news saw it twice on opening weekend there's only one other movie I've done that with and that was Star Trek First Contact mm, okay because it's First Contact um the Netflix show I consider to be the the peak okay and and, and, and I will only give it demerits because it was more spirit of the law than letter of the law there are some it got it got the right vibe, but it, it missed certain, you know, details. Okay. Just in the look and in some of the I mean, nothing that you're gonna miss. The character is intact. Mm-hmm. Just presented differently. I just wish they would release season three on physical media. Oh, okay. Just a hint to Disney. Interesting. So for me, on the Netflix series, I like I well, actually, I got to go back real quick about the Affleck movie. Um, I love that movie. I, I know there are all kinds of flaws with that movie. I can see the flaws. I don't care. I unapologetically mm-hmm. love both that version and the director's cut. I own them both on DVD. Don't care. I love them. I know there's a lot of bad stuff in there. Still don't care. I'm just going to agree to be blind. But so the Netflix thing. So I struggled with the Charlie Cox casting for a long time. Like to me, Matt should look like. I don't know, Eric Stoltz or something Mm. like, I don't necessarily want to see Eric Stoltz play Matt, but Matt should look like Eric Stoltz in my head with that, you know, kind of flaming orange hair. So I had trouble with Charlie Cox, but then, you know, after a couple episodes, he's just such a damn good actor. Uh, and he plays Matt exactly like I want to see Matt that I fell in love with it. So I, I feel like he got his Matt Murdock perfect. I, I feel yeah. like he really, really did. Yeah, I, I have to admit the initial casting worried because I'd seen Stardust. I'm like, that's not Daredevil. Uh, but yeah, he, he won. I think he won everybody over. Oh, yeah. I, I have enjoyed Defenders. And, and there's not many people that will defend that show. I'm, again, not saying it was great, but just Daredevil's actions in there, Matt's actions in there, the interaction with, I mean, mm-hmm. I love the Jessica Jones character. I love Luke Cage. Iron Fist, maybe not so much, but uh, so it was, I don't know. I, I'm, I enjoy that. I was watching scenes from Defenders just the other day because it got me so excited. I just, I remember the scene. It didn't have me all in until Matt comes swinging in. At, and I'm, I was in at that point because I was off the check, the couch, hands in the air. Yeah. Because for the most part, he was, he was pretty chill. And then he comes out of nowhere, swings and, and hits somebody trying to hit Jessica. And I was like, yes, it was, it was audible. I, I, I cheered when he walks in, uh, when, she, when he's like, you're going to have to get a lawyer. Like, who are you? I'm like, I'm her lawyer. And I was like, that, I was sold to that moment. <laughs> so I, one thing I have to thank about Daredevil too is my, my wife and I, we like very different things. Very rarely are we able to find a series that we both will watch. A lot of times we'll sit in the same room and she's watching it and I'm not really paying attention at like his show or vice versa. You know, but we don't fall in love with the same stuff. Well, I'm watching Daredevil for a second time at some point in the last couple of years and she's in the room on her iPad ignoring all of it and Vincent D'Onofrio comes on and I don't know what it is that captivates her with Vincent D'Onofrio, but she couldn't take her eyes off the screen. 
She was absolutely absor absorbed in his performance. The evil, the slamming car doors till people's heads come off. I mean, all of it. She was in 110% and ended up watching all of Daredevil with me because of D'Onofrio. So thank you to the Daredevil Netflix series for finding something both my wife and I can absolutely love. And that was probably the first superhero thing that she's ever watched that she wasn't just doing it to be nice to me. You know, she's watched tons of these superhero movies, but she doesn't care. This yeah. is the first one she genuinely cared about. <laughs> just the tolerate. Yeah, yeah, D'Onofrio. Can we just point out that he looks like a John Romita drawing walking off the page? Oh, like, he exactly. Does. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Wow. That is the most one-to-one I've ever seen. Oh, so <laughs> He's so good. He's so stinking good. They better not screw this up with uh, the new Born Again stuff. Well, they're, I think they're course correcting. There are some recent signs that, that it's on the right track. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. I, I do wonder, though. I mean, it's called Born Again, right? So but season three was kind of the Born Again story in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So I wonder how much is left. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they're going to figure out how to make it work. But I, I do wonder how much they're going to have to deviate from the original Born Again for stuff they've already covered. That's a good point. What well, maybe just him being rebuilt, which yeah. I would love to see. Yeah. But his appearance in She-Hulk, <laughs> I'm like, that's my boy. I mean, even my wife just goes, he's so cool. <laughs> it was amazing. It was so, I mean, we all knew it was coming, but it's still like watching it. It feels so out of left field seeing him on a sitcom and yet they made it work. Yep. And it just, <laughs> God, it was funny. I mean, genuinely hilarious. Ah. Well, wow. So we haven't even got – we're already 50 minutes into this. We haven't even got to the comic, but I don't care. I'm having so much fun. Uh, I do need to thank our sponsors, though, folks. Uh, this episode of uh, Once Upon a Geek is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for comic book trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping on orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode, we pick a comic book uh, collected edition to, to briefly discuss, and it's tied in somehow. My pick is Daredevil Epic Collection Trade Paperback, A Touch of Typhoid Mary. I've already spent the last 20 minutes talking about why this is so good, folks. This is Anna Senti. This is John Armada Jr. This is the first half of her run. It's all the, the hot, sweaty sex I just talked about <laughs> with uh, with Typhoid Mary. Uh, it collects 253 to 270, along with a Punisher issue. 472 pages. Uh, I own this collected edition myself because the Epic Collections are always put together exceptionally well by Marvel. Mm -hmm. They really do a great job with those. Full color, soft cover. Normally goes for $44.99 out Ouch, but you can get it for 38% off right now. So it's only $27.89 for 472 amazing pages. You will not regret it. Uh, Dave guarantees you your money back So uh, if you don't like it. So, okay, that's not true. But it's a great collection. So Dave, I will vouch for it. Yeah, I will vouch for it. Not money back, but I'll vouch for the book. <laughs> did you happen to bring a pick? I did. And it's for a nefarious reason. Ooh. I did the Marvel Masterworks, Daredevil Marvel Masterworks, Volume 18. Mm-hmm. It's mostly the Denny O'Neill run, which has some really shining moments and then not so shining moments. I want mm. people to get the gamut of quality. Okay. But you get multiple artists, including David Mazzuchelli. You have a John Byrne cover in there. You have a really cool storyline, which I don't want to spoil, but there's a character death that is kind of on Daredevil's shoulders, hmm. allegedly. Uh, 392 pages. It would normally be $75. This is hardcover, but now it's $46.50. I don't guarantee your money back, but I guarantee you're going to have an experience with this book. <laughs> Those Mazzuchelli issues are breathtaking. Mm, they're, they're absolutely amazing. breathtaking. 
I uh, when when Denny O'Neill passed away, we did an episode celebrating him, and I picked one of his issues with Mazzuchelli from Daredevil specifically because it was so stinking good. Yeah, folks, for these and all your other comic book trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Now, this episode is also sponsored in part with your Patreon support because you know running the Firewater Podcast Network with so many shows requires a lot of online hosting and other services. And a while back, we realized we needed some help with the expenses, so we launched the Patreon. And you folks really stepped up to help keep the network going. So if you're enjoying the shows on the network, the best way to support us is by visiting Patreon.com. Slash FW Podcast. And while you're there, please consider supporting the network. And in certain tiers, you get mentioned on your favorite shows. This episode's special thanks go out to Michael Salko, David A. Gutierrez, and Gord Tolton. Again, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash FW Podcast. Now, folks, Dave and I have been going on for a while, and we're going to go on for a while longer, but we want to hear from you as well. Because this show is supposed to be all of us sharing our geeky love for things. And I know there's a bunch of you Daredevil fans out there. So please let us hear your thoughts on Daredevil. Uh, what are your favorite runs, favorite creators? What do you think of the various TV appearances? You know, whatever. Best way to be part of the conversation is over on our comments section on our website. So that's firewaterpodcast.com slash onceuponageek. You can leave your thoughts there on the show post. That's where most of the conversation is. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and Blue Sky as Once Upon a Geek or on Facebook and Instagram as Once Upon a Geek Podcast. And remember, uh, we do cover your feedback every fifth episode of the show. Now, this is the 18th episode, so you got a couple more months to get it in. I'll cover everything on the 20th uh, episode. But I will be reading comments from our website on that feedback. So if you want to be involved, leave your comments on the show post on the website. So we want to hear all your thoughts about DD Old Hornhead. Now, folks, we are going to take a quick podcast promo break. And when we come back, we're finally going to talk about Daredevil number 268. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice, blind justice, a guardian devil. <coughs> <coughs> no. No, no, that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil. You get it. You get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? Grab your bat microphone. It's time to start the show. Welcome to the Bat Pod, a Batman comic book discussion whoa, whoa, podcast. Whoa, whoa, what are you doing? That's my line. I'm starting the show. I was waiting on you. We're starting the show. I'm the one that says that. You're my new co-host, where we talk about back issues of Batman, could be in Detective Comics, World Finest. Could we do some Shadow of the Bat and maybe some Nightwing, maybe some Batgirl? Absolutely. Can we also define where my co-hosting parameters start and end? I can't start the show, but I can definitely co-host it. Well, maybe we'll let you start the show. Okay, at least I get to pick one of the books we're covering on each episode, and you can pick the other? Absolutely. Can I can I close out the show? Can I bring friends? Will there be snacks? What is your favorite bet snack? Cucumber sandwiches. Join Bill Beer and J. David Weeder every two weeks on the Bet Pod. You can find us on your favorite podcast app. Grab your headphones, listen up. You know you love it. Drop the facade. Like the Dark Knight Detective, they've got some perspective. They're a pure crime-fighting collective. It's the Bat Pod. 
right, folks, we are going to talk about Daredevil number 268. This is cover dated July 1989. It was on the shelves March 7th, 1989. It's, it's rare in life that I know exactly where I was, at least within a week period. I know I was within a comic shop within a week or so of this issue coming out. So it's, it, it's interesting to know that I know where I was at one point. Uh, cover price is 75 cents. Page count was 22 pages. Cover is by John Romita Jr. and Al Williamson. Hell yeah, it is. Uh, you want to tell us about the cover? Yep. I mean, you kind of described it earlier. I mean, it's lit from below like he's standing in front of a fire. Daredevil, and I hesitate to say this, but it looks like he's looking at the reader with a sneer on his face and he's holding up a noose in his hand. This is this is gorgeous. That's all there is to it. Yeah. Yeah. The the line work is so thin. Like, if you look at the way Romita has drawn, like, the Daredevil logo, and and it's almost – it feels almost like a sketch rather mm-hmm. than a, a full-blown illustration. It's so the um, – there's a lot of hatchwork. I'm not, I'm not saying there's not a lot of lines, but it's just – I don't know. There's something rough about it, something unfinished that just mm-hmm. gives it flavor. And this cover is what jumped out at me. I'm like, holy crap. You know, he's holding up a hangsman's noose. He's looking right at – and I didn't think of him as looking at the reader. I looked – I thought of it as him looking at the guy that he's going to hang is how I looked at it. Uh, is that, you know, we're looking through the eyes of the victim here and it's so powerful and stunning. And that lighting from below, I mean, you mentioned earlier, that's the Frank Miller trick, right? Isn't mm-hmm. that how he, that's how he, yeah, that's how he lit Kingpin, right? Wasn't it from below lighting from, from a, below? Yep. Yeah. It was on shadows a, a, and yeah. And it just blew me away. And I just had to put this comic in my hands and have been a fan ever since. So yeah, stunning cover, stunning, absolutely stunning cover. I love the corner box, this particular version of the corner box. Maybe not the way it's colored here, but it's Daredevil looking off. Well, again, looking, air quotes, looking off to the side with his billy club resting on his shoulder. I've always loved that image. It's a nice shot. I wonder if that's a – it looks like that's a Remita shot probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the DD is pretty, uh, pretty specific to him. It is interesting that by artist and by even the moment, the DDs change so dramatically. You know, sometimes – like in this case, uh, in the corner box, the DD is as big as his chest. And then here, <laughs> you know, the other drawing is, is much smaller. Sometimes it's just on the breast. I mean, every artist does it differently and it's it's uh, a yeah. it works any which way but it's kind of funny so the issue itself is called Golden Rut, written by Ann Nascenti. Penciler is John Romita Jr. Inker is Al Williamson. Letter is Joe Rosen. Colorist is Max Scheel. Editor is Ralph Macchio. No, not that one. Editor-in-chief is Tom DeFalco. Now, to give you guys a little bit of context leading up to this issue, we, we talked a little bit earlier about the wash, rinse, repeat. I mean, that's what's going on here in Matt's life. Uh, at this point, leading up to this issue, Matt Murdock's life has completely fallen apart again. You know, he's lost the love of his life. He's lost his law practice. He's suffering enormously amounts of misery. And here, he is on the brink of a mental breakdown. You know, uh, he's abandoned New York City and is simply just drifting from town to town. Now, all this happened prior to the issue. Now, let's get inside Daredevil number 268. So, uh, in a small town, Matt arrives and seemingly at random selects a bed and breakfast where to, uh, to rent a room. Now, on the verge of depression, Matt seeks anything to occupy his mind and uses his enhanced senses to study everyone else around him. He eavesdrops on the B&B proprietors, uh, a man named Ramo and his wife Sally. Matt overhears that Ramo is working as a reluctant enforcer for his brother's loan shark operation. As Daredevil, Matt follows Ramo and observes that his brother, Hank, is viciously beating this delinquent loan client. Now, Hank expects Ramo to step up the pressure on his own loan clients, insisting that Ramo needs to become more comfortable with dishing out violence to ensure the clients repay their loans. 
Now, throughout the issue, sort of at least throughout the whole thing, Ramo was having these traumatic flashbacks to his childhood pet dog. And due to and, and it's it's disturbing, folks. Uh, due to health reasons, the family was forced to amputate the dog's leg. It's it's really horrible. And, and Ramo has been haunted by this decision his whole life, feeling that he betrayed the dog's trust. And in Ramo's mind, like the dog's amputation and the trust is all connected with the violence that he's expected to dish out to these clients. So, flashback to the present here, uh, and Daredevil confronts the brother Hank and pretty much torments him in repeating verbatim the words that uh, that uh, Hank used while beating up that delinquent client. Matt does a lot of uh, borderline torture on this guy. Eventually, Hank confesses that the loan shark racket is funded by the kingpin. Elsewhere, uh, Ramo confronts his own delinquent client, but he can't bring himself to be violent with the client. Instead, Ramo decides that he's quitting the loan shark business. He's out. And later, Ramo and Sally get a call from Hank that he's shutting down the loan shark business and getting out of town. And Matt secretly overhears all this, knowing that he's made a difference in these people's lives. The story ends with Matt leaving as he continues to walk down the highway and cue the music, the Lonely Man theme. So there we go. That's the issue. Uh, a lot to unpack here. Why don't you go first, and I'll just chime in as you go through your thoughts. Rereading this, I was trying to picture a show from that would have been in the 80s around this time that would have been on HBO. Mm. This is very much an HBO type of show, anthology style. Yeah. But I was going back through the run, and Daredevil, leading up to this, Daredevil has this confrontation with Typhoid Mary, who's gathered all these troops. He lays, it's like three or four issues, he's laying on this little grassy area beneath a bridge, injured, near death. Mm-hmm. He is screwed up so bad. Yeah. And his first thing that he does, what Matt does, is just leaves. I mean, he goes to a bar for Christmas, and that's a really recommended issue, but he leaves. He never goes back to deal with it, at least up to this point. Right. He leaves town, he goes on this, you could call it a spirit quest if you wanted to, but he's running away from his problems. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's absolutely, he's, it's like an old Western, the guy who goes town to town, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. except, and they're running from their problem, rather than facing their issues, they're running from, which is absolutely, because he's, he is screwed over Karen, his girlfriend, he, he's cheated on her, she's heading back possibly for a life of drug abuse, you know, he's blown up his business, he's not himself, but he's ruined his job, yeah, he's just running away, he's just screwed, I can't deal with it anymore, and Inferno is kind of where all this came to a head, That's storyline mm-hmm. and it becomes it really becomes a story about matt trying to find his soul literally and figuratively to be honest there's a part of matt murdoch that's gone it's damaged and it's a part that he's it's hard to quantify because it's not just psychological it's it has to do with his faith it has to do with with who he is not just what he thinks how he thinks who he is he has betrayed everything that he is so his soul has been lost and this is him wandering from town to town helping other people but not addressing his situation Part of me gets disappointed with Matt, mm-hmm. but part of me also understands he's going a, a circuitous route back to have to face that at some point. Yeah, I, I have a hard – because, I, again, I haven't read this whole run in a while. I'm having a hard time remembering it. He, he has a big confrontation with Blackheart, who's the son of the devil. He's the son of Mephisto. Um, did that happen before this or after just this? Be- before, Just before – a little bit before. There's something that happens after. Okay. If I remember correctly. But, yeah, he's definitely already confronted it. Okay. And so, then it just goes it goes bonkers from here, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he ends up fighting Ultron, folks, just mm-hmm. so you know. And he wins, just for the record. <laughs> By beating him with a stick. Which is a little crazy, but hey, you know what? You go with it because the run is just that damn good. But you know what I would compare it to? Hmm. Dante's Inferno. Mm. You mean the that, issue or the run? A little bit of the, the, the run, at least okay. this part of the run. All right. Where you have Matt going through the metaphorical circles of hell, confronting the different versions of sin. Like here, this would be him confronting wrath. Yeah. In order to address 
where he was, which in the Inferno, Dante's partway through his life and he he's lost his direction. So he gets guided by Virgil through hell and through pur- purgatory and paradise. But he you see different components of hell through that story. If anybody you know studied that in college, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Nascenti is creating a version of that with this run. Hmm. And suddenly I wish I had a show to discuss this on in, in great length. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Ryan Daly's wife, by the way, is a bit of an expert on Dante. And so I'd be, you know, love for, and I know Ryan's read this run. I'd be interested mm-hmm. to see if they could swap some notes and hear what they have to say about it too. Because that's probably a very interesting perspective. I like you comparing it to Dante's Inferno. Because I do think it's fair to say that Anne had a plan when she crafted mm-hmm. this. I don't think she was flying by the seat of her pants issue by issue. I think she had a plan. And I think she does kind of lay it all out in Matt going through different phases as he goes through all this I man I miss this kind of era too where you could plan out two years of a story you want to tell right I mean nobody can do that nowadays you'd be lucky to get six issues but um I hadn't thought about it with Dante's Inferno it's definitely a journey definitely a journey that Matt's going through I mean at this point in this journey one of the things that's sort of disturbing is, um, and also makes this sort of a, a good bottle episode in that, you know, you don't have to have read much around it. You know, Matt is disconnected from reality. I mean, essentially, he is, he's almost like a robot. It's like, you could, the, the term disassociative disorder uh, might even apply in this place. I mean, Matt is mm-hmm. not in the right headspace at all. I mean, he's, he's not there. He's just going through the motions. Again, that's why I'm thinking separated from his soul. And it, mm-hmm. I don't know if, if that's the intention. That's just, it's what I picked up once I threw my original notes out. Yeah. No, I, and, you might be onto that. Interesting. Huh. So for me, uh, coming to this, you know, picking this comic book up, I was, um, I was looking for more mature, thought-provoking comics. And this mm-hmm. comic certainly uh, was more in the realm of what I wanted. And I, I didn't know this at the time, but I was just five months away from hitting what I call like my dark, dark, darkity, dark, dark phase, which is like, I, oh, I just read Sandman and I read Doom Patrol. <laughs> I don't read superheroes anymore. But Daredevil, I stuck with because it didn't, you said it earlier, it's almost like a proto-vertigo book. It doesn't read like a traditional superhero book. It reads like a much darker, more mature book. And so it just, it totally connected with me. And, and also the art is an easy win for me because I, I came up in, with my X-Men reading uh, and X-Men's kind of like a big passion of mine as well. I came up with my X-Men reading during the John Romita Jr. era. That's when I was reading it. Then uh, the other side of this, my, some of my earliest comics I ever collected before I even considered myself a comic collector, I was buying Star Wars comics. And a lot of those were drawn by Al Williamson. So I was like predisposed or, or programmed, if you will, to love this Daredevil art from, from Jump. I, I, I had no choice but to love it. No, they kind of baited you in, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> they dragged me in. That's right. <laughs> you were a mark. But you, you, you pointed out it is very mature. This is a... I don't, I, I don't know how to address this gently. Mm-hmm. If you've ever been in the presence of an abusive relationship, this is a lot like it. There's a tension mm-hmm. there that mm-hmm. you can't quant- you can't really put your finger on. Usually one member of the party is a little bit more quiet and demure. And the wife here is that. Mm-hmm. It actually the, – there's several things that got my anxiety going in this issue, okay. which is complementary to it. But also, you know, it, it made for a visceral experience. Mm-hmm. One thing, just Hank's presence and her – her kind of going about her business really got to me because that's that's a picture perfect situation. Yeah. I've seen abusive relationships and it's you're not seeing the bruises, you're not seeing the violence, but you know the presence of it. So do you feel that Ramo and and Sally had an abusive relationship emotionally? Or is emotionally, it emotionally, yeah. Or the abuse that Hank is putting in there is affecting their marriage. Ramo is bringing that home. So there I okay. get that idea that he's got a rage. And the nightmares kind of play that out. He's got a rage boiling. Hmm. 
And it's like when you're around somebody like that, it's like if you've met somebody who has a stressful job they're bringing that home. Okay. You're walking on broken glass around them. Interesting. Yeah. She's the one walking on broken glass. It's interesting in that, and, and I can't claim credit for this. I got this from reading an article just the other day about one of Anne Nascenti's story points she tries to bring home is, is something that didn't even have a term back when this was published, but toxic ma- masculinity mm. uh, and the impact uh, on the on the family. You know, in this one, Sally is trying to tell Ramo that he doesn't need to be the sole provider. You know, she keeps reminding him that they've, they've got the bed and breakfast. They can make it work. She doesn't need to have this job. And while we don't see that violence that's implied, he doesn't. she's not getting anything back from him, right? Mm-hmm. So she does shy away. She's like, okay, I've said enough, or I won't bother you anymore, or whatever. So he definitely is not giving her back the the, the kind of p- feedback you would want in an ideal relationship where you two are working through an issue. Yeah, and, yeah, and if you now that you point out toxic masculinity, I do see that theme going. Matt uh, destroys everything due to his masculinity, if you will. Yeah. His sexuality. <laughs> Let's just call it what it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's all that sweaty sex destroyed everything. Right. <laughs> I mean, this comic, folks, is bleak. It really is. Uh, but it, there's still an uplifting sense because Daredevil steps in. Uh, there's a cathartic piece of it because Hank is Hank, the brother, is such a terrible person, right? I mean, he's he beats the crap out of this guy, and then they sit down and eat a meal in front of the guy they beat up, which is awful. But then when Daredevil confronts Hank and he uses Hank's own dialogue, mm. work verbatim back at him uh, to to you know explain the situation what he's doing so he's using the previous dialogue but in an all new meaning it's incredibly powerful i mean he again he pretty much tortures hank i mean he sho- he beats the crap out of him he's shoving his face into piles of food he puts a noose around the guy's neck and then basically threatens to kick the chair out over and over it's intense but there's yeah. something cathartic about seeing this horrible a-hole get what he deserves yeah it's it's psychological i don't for a moment think matt was actually going to let him die I don't but, know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Matt was so disconnected at that point. He, I mean, obviously he didn't. But like, if he had done it, I, I don't know that I would have been that surprised. <laughs> I don't. I, I think that's a line he, he couldn't. You're probably yeah. right. You're probably. I, now right. I'm a little. Now I'm starting to question it. So, <laughs> well, only because he's so like again the disassociated disorder. Like, I mean, he's he's not even Matt Murdock at this point. He's <laughs> he, he's dare. He's almost like he's the daredevil rage in a human form or something. I don't know, but he's it's. It's scary. But yeah, you're right. Daredevil would not have killed somebody. You're absolutely right. Wow. It's like if you separate Banner and the Hulk, this is Daredevil separated from Matt. A little bit. A little bit. That's a little scary. Well, and that's why he's got that big, long journey, like you said. He's got got no soul. He's got to get back to who he was. Mm Mm-hmm. So you talked about the disconcerting stuff. I mean, the the flashbacks about the dog were Mm -hmm. intense. Um, I I do understand that the family felt they had to amputate the dog's leg because it was sickly. We don't have enough of a story there to question the family's motives. I have to assume that the family's motives were pure, just because I don't have anything else. But it is so heartbreaking. As a dog owner myself, it's heartbreaking uh, to see what the kid goes through. The, 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 the drawings of the dog looking at the kid, just trusting the little kid. Oh, my God. It's... So the, my question is, Ramo having these flashbacks, uh, is it... Is he associating the amputation and the dog's trust? Because is, are we supposed to be getting the trust aspect between Ramo and the client? Are we supposed to be getting the violence issue between Ramo and the client? Is it a little bit of column A, a little column B? I'm just curious your inter- interpretation on that. As a dog owner, you know how your dog looks at you. Mm-hmm. Your dog looks at you as if you are flawless. That's why I love dogs. My, my wife and I couldn't have children, so we've had we've had we had a previous dog. And we have two now. Mm-hmm. There is a certain feeling you get. An innocence from that. Now, as somebody, our dog, our previous dog had, she broke her toe. 
And it was bad enough. They're like, we need to take that toe off. Mm. I've been through that, which it did throw me. And there is that feeling of I failed this, this poor creature who looks mm-hmm. at me in such a pristine way. And when you see Remo with the, the guy he's shaking down, you can tell there's a friendship there. And you can tell by the way his wife looks at him that there is that look of you are somebody who matters. And that's what's being betrayed. It's a, it's a trust of you're a good person. Okay. It's the exact thing Matt's not being right now. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I took it. It was just the, when my dog looks at me, I feel like the greatest person in the world. Because they just, it's just full of love, full of you are my world. And not that that's necessarily what's happening here, but there is a a boost, a serotonin boost, if you will. And that's what he feels like he's betraying is that sort of innocence, that look. I think you're right. It's, it's, it is, it is pretty frustrating. It's pretty upsetting. No, I, I like your interpretation. I think that makes a lot of sense. And by there's a great expression I've heard that uh, I've used many times is try to be the person that your dog thinks you are. Mm-hmm. So I talked about earlier how I feel like this is an unusual issue for Daredevil, and yet it still contains a lot of the tropes that I love about Daredevil. And and again, like if you handed this to someone, this this is very far away from the the Devil of Hell's Kitchen, right? I mean, this is totally different. It's like you said. It's like one of those 80s TV shows with a guy going from city to city. But you do have organized crime funded by the Kingpin. You've got Matt meeting people, you know, as Matt Murdock and then helping them as Daredevil. You've got him fighting for justice, intimidating criminals. You've got him going too far, which what Matt Daredevil does quite often. And he's got him using his enhanced senses to study everything around him. So I feel like you get a lot of the tropes and it's a nice self-contained one and done story. Now, you've read a lot, you know, probably a lot more Daredevil comics than I have. So do you feel like this is a good Daredevil comic to put in someone's hands? Or is this uh, too far of of atypical? Uh, Just a notch over. Like, this isn't necessarily, like, you're right. All the tropes are there if you're a Daredevil fan. Mm -hmm. This wouldn't be the first issue I'd put in somebody's hands. Okay. 241 would probably be on, on the list because it is in Hell's Kitchen. That makes a huge difference. Yeah. But if it's somebody who is novice, you know, they have some experience with it beyond the Netflix show. They've read a few comics. Yeah, I would I would say this is a really good, solid issue. It's It's got a lot to chew on. And, and I'll endorse it from the perspective of as long as someone's even aware of the basics of Daredevil. I think this – because once if, – if they know who he is and that he operates in New York, then they can quickly accept that he's on the road and, and figure this out. Because, again, all I had read was the Secret Wars 2 issue and mm-hmm. this. That is all I'd read of Daredevil. Um, I mean, I guess the Marvel team up issue. So I guess I'd had seen him a couple of times. I'd seen him a couple of times here and there. But for the most part, that Secret Wars title issue and this one, and that's all. And this was enough to make me a fan for life. So I think it's, I think it can work as long as you know a little bit about the character and what he is. I think this one works. Mm. But I'm obviously biased because it's the one I love. So yeah, it's the one that you fell into. So I guess now that I think about it, I'm like, well, that proof's in, right in front of me, metaphorically speaking. <laughs> so folks, go on Marvel Unlimited and read it yourself and make your own decision. And, and let me know what you think. If this is a great example of a Daredevil issue, or maybe not even so much a great example of a Daredevil issue, but a great Daredevil issue. Maybe that's another way to put it. It's mm-hmm. a great issue of Daredevil. Maybe it's not uh, a perfect example of what the character is, but I think it's powerful. And again, obviously enough to make me a lifelong fan. Yeah, and I, I guarantee you at this point, I'm going to go back and reread this run. So, because it's it's already, it's it's planted that seed where I realize I've missed, I missed a lot of things through the years. I need to put it through a new lens. I need to, I'm right there with you. I need to read the second half of the run because I've reread the first half of the run a couple times now. Uh, but one, I, I usually, what ends up happening is I start reading it and then I get to the part where he's on the road and then life gets in the way and I get busy and I get distracted and I move on to something else because it's a long investment, you know, to do this. Mm-hmm. And I never, so what I need to do is I just need to pick up from here and go forward and read the rest of the Dante's Inferno and pick up on all that and uh, really live in that crazy Ultron fighting universe. <laughs> so folks, again, as I said, go out to Marvel 
Unlimited. Read this yourself. Let us know your thoughts in the comments. Dave, we are here to say happy birthday to Matt. 60 years. 60 years of being Daredevil. Any any closing thoughts about your love for Daredevil or this issue or any run or anything that you might want to share as we as we say fond farewell here? With 60 years under his belt, clearly he's endured. And I love that he has been a B-list character. Um, he has been a marquee character. He's been everything in between. Daredevil really is an incredibly ubiquitous character that I think is just now in the last decade or so getting his due. And I love that there's so much out there for people to to explore at Marvel Unlimited and other channels, legal channels. Um, I would recommend do so. Explore those early runs. Explore this character. There's a lot to him. And he's he's kind of an evergreen character. There's so much you can do with him that he is, no pun intended, unlimited. <laughs> I love that we live in a world where you, you said it earlier, like Daredevil was your character, right? No mm-hmm. one else followed him. In my, in my world, I was the same. I was the only person I knew reading Daredevil. And now I can have a conversation with my 84-year-old father who knows who Matt Murdock is. That's insane. That That's is awesome. absolutely insane to me and wonderful that we live in this kind of era. Because I'm thrilled that people are seeing in the character things that we loved. I'm glad they're seeing things that I didn't even think of. I'm glad they're taking Daredevil in different directions. And I haven't even read the Chip Zdarsky run yet. And I'm really excited to get into that because uh, uh, there's more Daredevil, Daredevil out there and they're still making great runs. And as we said, it's it's got to be the best run of, a, of any character out there. And hopefully it's going to continue that way. I believe it will. So, folks, with that, uh, I just want to say, Dave, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show, uh, pulling out your old cowl, putting it back on again, your horned cowl, and sharing your love for Daredevil. Why don't you tell the folks at home where they can find more of you nowadays? Yep. Best part is I actually do have a Daredevil hoodie with a cowl. Um, (laughs) That's great. uh, So currently, I co-host the Bat Pod. It's a Batman comic book discussion podcast with Bill Beer, my co-host. Shag at one point bribed his way on. (laughs) Don't hold it Uh, against him. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but that comes out every other Sunday at thebatpod.com. And if you're wanting to hear old episodes of Dave's Daredevil podcast, you can easily go to daredevil.davesmarveluniverse.com. I've so- recreated the entire site as it was originally. So you don't have to veer into adult territory. Can they uh, can they find it on their various podcatchers as well, or is it only on the site? Not currently. It's only on the site right now. Gotcha. But that could easily be changed if I change my mind down the road. Ooh, tempting. Uh, folks, put in the comments. Tell me you want to hear the show. <laughs> so, Dave, thank you again. This really means the world to me. And um, I hope I didn't fanboy gush all over you too much, but uh, I just, I, I, I'm thrilled to have an opportunity to talk with you about Daredevil. We were planning something for the 50th anniversary, so clearly we've been planning this for a long time. This is issue was on the docket a long time ago, so we finally fulfilled the prophecy. Well, I've had a blast, and I'm so glad we had the opportunity to finally do this. It was well worth the wait. Well worth the wait. Now, folks, come back next time where we're going to talk about another topic that brings us joy. And what will that topic be? Sorry, everyone. You're just going to have to wait and find out next episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Dave. And remember, life is short. Focus on the positive. Find Find your joy.
Justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark.